0: Good morning, Frick View. I'm going to state the obvious. Jason and I are not with you this morning. Um, we were gifted some time away in Eastern Washington, And um, but when we're not with you, we miss you guys. Um, I'm going to give you our announcements for this morning. First of all, um, we have our baby's room open for child care during the Sunday morning service. And that is for babies, um, ages zero, whenever you're comfortable dropping them off for child care through 24 months old. And we're looking for volunteers to help with that, but also that room is by RSUP only right now until we get a bigger volunteer team. And so if you're interested in your child having care, during the Sunday morning service and you want to RSVP for that, you go to brookviewchurch.com forward slash babies to sign up for that. And hopefully that is just like um, very self-explanatory as you do that. But if you have any questions about it, I would love to answer those for you. And to those of you that have signed up to volunteer in that room, thank you. Like Thank you. It is so cool that we can open up space um, and allow parents to have some, some time when they get to hear the message on Sunday mornings and they're not wrestling with their child. Um, if you decide to keep your child with you, that is great. And our um, cry room is still open off of the lobby and the, um, the service is on video in that room as well. So if your child gets restless during the Sunday morning service, please feel free to make use of that space as well. The other announcement that I have is for Soccer Club and thank you for the big response last week to my announcement saying we have more kids than what we have coaches for um, currently. In addition to that, we have a pretty pretty big wait list this year for um, kiddos that would like to come and families that would like to bring their kids to enjoy soccer club and so the more volunteers that we have in the next week or two the more kids we will be able to accommodate and love and serve um, come august 7th through 11th that's when soccer club is And our program runs from 10.30 in the morning till noon. And what that means for a volunteer is Monday through Friday, they would come at about 9.30 in the morning. And then we all have lunch together at about noon or as soon as kids all get picked up. Um, and then we head out of the field at about one o'clock in the afternoon after we've all had lunch that's provided for you. Um, And so we need all sorts of help um, with that. We need coaches, we need assistant coaches, we need some administrative help and some help with our store. There's a huge barbecue on Friday. So if you think that you might be able to serve even just for a couple of hours, we would love to have you and, and kind of put the puzzle pieces together, begin to do that, Um, and we are placing our t shirt orders um, by the middle of this month. So the 15th of this month is when that has to be in. So if you think there's even a chance that you might be able to serve August 7th through 11th in any capacity, I would love to hear from you and um, we can begin a dialogue. So the way that you would do that is by um, signing up on your Connect card that's on your seat this morning, or if you're watching online like we are today, you can go ahead and go to brookviewchurch.com forward slash contact, and there's a little thing you can click to fill out the online communication card. We love hearing from you. That's a great place to send in comments, to um, share prayer needs that you might have. We have a team of people that prays for you throughout the week, Um, and so we are just um, excited for this morning. Bryce McFadden is here today, and Bryce, thank you for loving our people well and for bringing the message this morning and for providing um, the opportunity for Jason and I to to be away and to just enjoy um, a different rhythm a little bit. Happy 4th of July, everybody, and we cannot wait to see you next week.
1: Good morning. That was really uh, sweet for uh, Jen to add that personal touch. Jen and Pastor Jason have been friends over the years, and uh, I, I'm always privileged to come here and share with you. And uh, I'm looking forward to today. And for those of you that are online, Jason and Jen love you guys. Glad you were able to get away and uh, have some rest. Uh, I felt like even the announcement sounded restful. Didn't you think? <laughs> How can you not be restful in your announcements over on the other side and, in a beautiful spot like that? But I'm glad that you guys came today. You never know what's gonna show on 4th of July, and, um, you know, and, and it wasn't even raining, you know? So good attendance here today. and um, I have fresh batteries in the pack today. <laughs> hey, I brought my lunch. No, I'm just kidding. That will be useful in the service, though. I had a little fun with this sermon, so I hope you can roll with me today. Um, I love Old Testament stories. Uh, I grew up in a home. My dad was a pastor, so I grew up going to Sunday school and learning stories from the Bible, and I think one of my favorite stories comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17, David and Goliath. Have You heard of that one? Yeah. It's pretty familiar to us. Uh, I'm going to take us through it today. I'm not going to read the whole thing. There's like 53 verses in the chapter. I'm not going to do that. I'll select a few. And then I used a commentary to add comments alongside of the sermon. It's the, uh, the Bryce McFadden commentary series. I don't know. Um, I, I wanted to bring the story to life a little bit um, and just take a good look at it. And I'm saving my application. The practical takeaways... the end of the sermon. So if I'm going through this and you go, well, what is this really saying to me? I'm going to get there, okay? And I hope that it's going to meet us where we're at in life. I think there are some very significant things we can learn from this passage. Um, The story takes place in the countryside of Judah, and it's in the days of Israel under the leadership of King Saul. A little backstory, Saul started well. He was the first king of Israel. He started out well, and then he disobeyed God, and the result is God rejected him as king. He selected a new guy. Who can tell me who that new guy would be? David, yes. And uh, interesting, we see in chapter 16, just the previous chapter, that the uh, prophet Samuel is anointing David for kingship, But it would still be another 15 plus years before David would ever hit the throne as king. Now, Israel had a long history of conflict with the Philistine nation. It not only uh, during the time when Joshua entered the promised land and they began to overtake the the nations in that land, but you go into the period of the judges, you think of Samson, uh, the battles that he had, and a lot of them were kind of individual battles that he had uh, with the Philistines. But we go on into the reign of King Saul and the many kings that would follow. There was this tension and conflict between Israel and the Philistines and other nations. It seems from God's perspective that the Philistine nation was left in the land to test Israel's commitment to their God. Their God that they were to trust in who would fight their battles for them. And we come to chapter 17 of 1 Samuel and we see Israel is again at war with the Philistines, and this is another test for Israel. Will they trust in God for the victory, or will they trust in their own resources? I like what one commentator says. He says this story is the quintessential underdog story. Uh, maybe you're the kind of person, you, uh, your favorite sports team comes from behind and wins the playoffs. That's cool. Or you have a boastful boxer that is defeated by a very unlikely person. Um, Those are underdog stories. But the story of David and Goliath is more than just an underdog story. It has something to, to teach us personally about God's faithfulness in the battle. It also shows me something too that when God wants to accomplish something, he will use whatever and whomever. In fact, a lot of times he'll choose somebody that is very unlikely because he wants to reveal that it's really his power and his strength that's accomplishing the task and not the the individual and all his skills and resources and gifts. So he'll often choose very unlikely people, and it makes that point very clear. All the glory, all the praise goes to God. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, here's what we find. We find two armies assembled in Saka in Judah. Now, I wanted to give you just a little tip here. I learned this some time back, and I think this is good to pass on to you. When you. How many struggle with names and places in the Bible, pronouncing them? Yeah. So here's what you do. You pick a pronunciation, and you boldly and confidently use it, <laughs> and nobody will question you, okay? So here, they're assembled the Philistine army and the Israelite army in in (laughs) (laughs) Saka on opposite hills. And there's a valley between them, Elah. See, I'm being very bold, (laughs) confident. And uh, basically, that valley was the battle line, the front line to engage the enemy. Let me begin by introducing the antagonist. In verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. Its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. A lot of detail given to the antagonist. And we obviously see they work with metal, right? Bronze and iron. And, um, but he's a man of experience. He's a champion. He's an elite fighting man. He's been tested in his military skills. He's a giant. Uh, it's said that he's possibly nine foot, nine inches tall, about your size. Almost <laughs> 10 feet, right? <laughs> um, I love you, man. You know that. The average Israelite guy is like five foot five inches. At least that's what uh, historians have said. So there's quite a big difference. Bronze helmet, scale armor that weighs about 125 pounds. Can you imagine walking around with 125 pounds on you? You'd have to be a big guy to carry that. Uh, Bronze greaves to protect his shins. There's nothing like the enemy kicking your shins. I'll tell you what, (laughs) that can knock you out of the battle immediately. I hate that, okay? You've slammed your shins before. You know what I'm talking about. I can ruin your day. Um, He's got a spear that weighs 15 pounds just on the point of the spear. He's got three weapons. He's got a javelin slung on his back. Javelins were meant to be thrown, so they were shorter than a spear, uh, but similar. The spear is meant to be thrusted at the enemy. And of course, the sword slices and dices. That's for close-up combat. He's got all those weapons, and he's got an armor bearer who carries the shield, and I have a feeling the armor bearer probably was trained to stop flying objects, which tells me something. We can blame it all on the (laughs) armor bearer. You know the end of the story. Okay, we won't go there. We're moving along, though. Um, Because really, military skill, the greatest military skill was considered the hand-to-hand combat. It wasn't shooting arrows, stuff like that. According to this account, each day both armies would line up in battle formation, then this giant warrior would step out to the battle line. He'd defy the, the Israelite army. He'd shout at them. He'd curse by his heathen gods, and he would challenge them to send out one warrior to fight him. And this has been done in history. They've Instead of having both armies come together and slaughter a bunch of people, they have one per- person to represent each army. And so he was offering a deal. Hey, Send out one of your guys to fight me, and if your guy wins, we will be your servants. But if I win, you'll be our servants. So how does Israel respond? Here's a few select verses. Verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Notice they include the king in this. The king's dismayed and terrified along with the rest of the army. In verse 24, it says... When the israelites saw the man they all ran from him in great fear and in verse 16 for 40 days the philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand now here's what i picture israel's army gets up in the morning the men shower and shave and they use the the santa cans that are set around the camp they suit up with armor and ammo they check the sharpness of their weapons They take their last swig of Starbucks and head out to the battle line. That's what I picture in my perfect world, okay? Then the giant Philistine steps out with his challenge, and they just panic, and they run. And next thing you know, the lines are even longer to the Santa Cans. Forty days. Think about this. The first thing you hear in the morning, the last thing you hear at night, is the challenge of Goliath. I would say this, Goliath was in their heads, right? Um, that's 80 times this has been going on. This is, I call this psychological warfare, right? Uh, you, uh, by the way, U.S. military analysts say attacking the enemy's mind is among the chief strategies many modern armies use in order to catch their adversaries off guard. They say psychological warfare is actually capable of defeating the enemy without even engaging them. And this is certainly what we see going on here. Now, we've been introduced to the antagonist. Now the protagonist, David, son of Jesse from a little backwater town called Bethlehem. Youngest in the family of eight sons. He's the runt. He's at the back end of the line. He's got three older brothers that are in the army, making dad proud. I can just see those brothers taking selfies in their armor, you know with Goliath in the background. (laughs) (laughs) David's at home tending his father's sheep. And by the way, you don't have to be really intelligent to watch sheep. I mean, it was often a job that was given to children, even. Um, Pretty much anyone could do the job. And Jesse, though, wants to know how his sons are doing. He's concerned. They're in the military. He knows they're up against the Philistines. And so he sends David on an errand. He sends him with 10 loaves and some roasted uh, grain for his brothers and then uh, 10 cheeses for the commander. And I'm, I'm not sure, you know, how, you know, what the significance is of, of the different foods and why the commander got 10 cheeses. Maybe the cheese was to go with all their whining. I don't know. I'm not sure. Anyway, David is the delivery boy. I know some of these jokes are really bad. I, I apologize in advance, okay? Uber Eats is on the way. David's on the way to the army. And um, Jesse's hoping he returns with some really good assurance that his sons are fine. They're doing well. David reaches the camp as just as both armies are going out to line up for battle. And he hears the shouting of the war cries. And uh, then Goliath steps out with his usual challenge. And once again, Israel panics and they just scatter in fear. Little David's taking all this in. And when I say little David, scholars figure he was somewhere between 13 to 15 years old. Is that crazy? Yeah. He overhears King Saul giving some incentives or some rewards for whoever would step out to fight Goliath. Uh, For one thing, he'll give him great wealth. He'll give his daughter in marriage, And his father's family will be exempt from paying taxes. Sounds like a pretty good deal. But is it worth the risk? Apparently David's not sure that he heard right. And he asks more than once um, in verse 26, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David's speaking like as a (laughs) 15-year-old, pretty boldly. But he's putting this in a different context. Uh, context. Israel's all looking at this from an earthly perspective. And David's really seeing it from a spiritual perspective. Israel's looking at the size of their enemy and how big he is compared to any of their fighting men. And David, he sees Goliath as just some oversized Philistine. In fact, he questions the very identity of Goliath. He calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. Who does he think he is? Who is this guy? He's nothing special. He's not one of God's covenant people. Now, you see some family dynamics going on in the story. Um, David's oldest brother, Eliab, hears him talking. And uh, he says in verse 28, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Sounds like an older brother, kind of. I had an older brother. He implies that David's motives are evil and selfish and he's irresponsible. And I like how he says, watch those few sheep. You're You're not even given much of a task, really. You're just watching a few sheep. And here you are, talking like you're talking. And David responds like the younger brother. I can just picture this, verse 29. Now what have I done? Can't I even speak? Now, David apparently is overheard, and I'm not sure what all is overheard, but somehow news gets to the king, and David is brought before King Saul. And David says to the king in verse 32, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, your servant, will go and fight him. Saul's first response, he says, you're not able to go out and fight against this Philistine. You're only a boy. He's been a fighting man since his youth. Frankly, Goliath has probably been fighting uh, longer than David's been alive. But David seems to see what others don't see, and he refuses to see what others see. He's He's not inquiring about Goliath's skill, age, social standing, IQ, weight of the spear, size of the shield, or even the skull and crossbones tattooed on his neck. David rather begins to share his own fighting experience while shepherding. He took on a bear and a lion in hand-to-paw combat. He says in verse 36, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Because he defied the armies of the living God. See how he's putting that spiritual perspective in there. The Lord who delivered me, now who's he given the credit to? The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So David sees this challenge by Goliath as defiance, not simply against Israel's army, but against the heavenly armies of the living God. And God, who is commander in chief, it's a spiritual matter to David. And notice, he g- credits the victory over the lion and the bear, he gives God the credit for that. He has a God focus, not a Goliath focus. Saul doesn't have any volunteers, so young David stepped forward. So finally, without any other choices, Saul says, Okay, you can go and fight him. But Saul's still thinking from an earthly perspective. If this 15-year-old is going to go take on Goliath, he will need the best armor in all Israel, the king's armor. So they put Saul's armor on little David. He's not accustomed to that. It doesn't even fit right. He's clunking around with this armor. And so decides to shed that. And so we see in the story that David heads to the stream and selects five smooth stones. And carrying his sling, he approaches the Philistine. We're going to push pause for a moment. I know we're right at the, you know, it's a cliffhanger. It's a cliffhanger. Pretend you don't know how it ends. <laughs> um, I, I get fascinated with some details. Weapons. Weapons. Uh, in this case, a sling. Anybody familiar with the sling? Yeah, you guys are slingers out there then, right? That's what, they, that's what they call you, and you're not a gunslinger. You're a slinger, okay? Um, they say that possibly it was the sling was invented by shepherds to ward off predatory animals and eventually became a weapon of war. Um, the sling had several advantages in wartime. Um, they had a greater effective range than a lot of other things. Um, in the military, they would have the archers and the slingers next to each other because they were both kind of doing the same task. But uh, from the studying, and I you know, I hate to put things in numbers like how far arrow could go versus a rock, um, it seems like, the things that I've read, the slingers had the advantage. Um, they had more effective range than even the archers. Uh, The cool thing, too, if you're a slinger, it's easy to find ammo. You just look for it on the ground. Nature provides it. And, you know, I always thought this. I thought when David went to the stream, he picked out little marble-sized smooth pebbles. That's not the size of the rocks they were throwing in those days. They were like anywhere from a golf ball size to uh, a cue ball or a baseball uh, the reason archaeologists have uncovered areas where they have found some of this, and that's the size of what some of these stones have been. You imagine a cue ball coming at you? I don't care if you're wearing armor or not. That's going to do some damage, you know? Now, there's a disadvantage or a downside to slinging um, because it takes a lot of training to get accurate, a lot of training. Um, I I brought one with me today, I just thought it was kind of cool, just one more military weapon that I have, (laughs) you know what I mean? (sighs) Yeah, here it is, it's kind of messed up a little bit, but it's got a loop on one end, you put this on this finger right here, and if I can get it all untangled here, we're getting there. I know, little pouch, a pool ball's not going to work well on this one. Uh, order this off Amazon. They had several different models. <laughs> just, just so you guys know, okay? There. And, you know, here's how you swing it. It's, it's kind of like an underhand fast pitch, and then you let this string go. Now, I, I went in the backyard the other day, did some, <laughs> did some practicing, and... Um, cool (laughs) Um, I was going to show you how it worked and I I felt like last time I was here I left my glasses here I haven't seen clearly since but this morning I feel like I do and I was I was thinking I could actually put it out in the foyer because I was doing pretty good in my backyard I I didn't ask I didn't ask Jason about this this might be the last this might be the last sermon I preach here but I think I can put it out in the foyer, but I was thinking, you, you guys that are on my right, if you want to scoot in a little bit, I'm not going to do that. Okay. I wouldn't do that. Jason's sitting over there on the other side going, oh, oh the guy's never coming back. Okay. Uh, no, they could be deadly accurate, though, honestly. In fact, if you read in, in Judges, some of you might remember this. They had 700 left-handed Benjamites that could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. That's quite accurate. And those guys were (laughs) left-handed. How many many left-handed people we have? I know we have some. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Love you guys. I I was going to say, could you imagine how good they could have been if they were (laughs) right-handed? Oh boy. Okay, let's get back to the battle, okay? Um, As David walks toward Goliath, Goliath is cursing David by his gods, and the scripture says Goliath despised him. He has no fear of David whatsoever. He's the champion. He's been bullying. He's been intimidating the army of Israel for 40 days straight. But here, I love what David says to him. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. David is declaring the victory, and the glory goes to God. It's for God's fame and for his name, and David has full confidence in the God of Israel. You know, a story we know doesn't end well for Goliath. He's struck with the rock from David's sling. He he's killed immediately. David cuts off his head, just like he said he would do. I know I have a curious fascination with things. Why do they cut off heads? Um, for one thing, it's a sign of victory and might, and it's kind of like went into the trophy case, you know. It was it was a sign of, of military might and and whatnot. That's kind of morbid, I realize, but there was another reason I think that's kind of interesting is. Um, a nation could figure out how many of their enemy had been killed by counting the heads. Now, I wonder if that's where we get the term head count. <laughs> I don't know. That might be a Google thing, a Google thing for later, okay? Israel won a great victory that day, yet really, it was the Lord's victory. I mean, I could say a whole lot of things about the sling, and, oh, David must have practiced out there when he's watching sheep because what else do you do, you know? But honestly, God gave the victory, and David gave the credit to his God. But God did use him. He used a little guy that was big on faith. And if there's any practical point I'd like to say, it doesn't mean that you have to have all the skills, and you have to be just incredible and bring all your stuff to the table to be used by God. Be a person of faith. Believe in God. Let me go into some application here. That was one. Let me go into some more. Number one, face your battles and frame them with a heavenly perspective. Uh, David could have focused, like everyone else, on the size of Goliath, but he he focused on the greatness of his God. I say this, we all face battles in life, and if you only focus on your troubles and your trials and your tribulations, your problems, your pressures, your pain... What you are facing will always seem bigger and more intimidating, and you'll easily give way to fear. But your battles are spiritual because God is with you. And while the rest of the Israelite army was running in panic, David was standing in confidence on his God. The second thing is this, bolster your confidence by remembering God's faithfulness in the past. Bolster your confidence by remembering God's faithfulness to you in the past. David's faith and confidence was born out of his experience of God's grace and his mercy in his life. And he recounted God's help over the bear and the lion. You know, battles will always provide spiritual challenges in our lives. But there's also spiritual benefit. They remind us, battles remind us that our dependence is on God not on ourselves, and every victory won in the power of God becomes another example to us of God's intervention, and that builds our faith, and you know, unfortunately, we we forget how God has helped us in the past, and that's why I think sometimes it's really good that we, we write things or journal things where we've seen God answer prayer, where has He helped us work through the battles in life, so that when the next battle comes, we can go back and go, God, you were faithful here, you were faithful here, you were faithful here. I know you're going to be faithful to me now in this battle that I faith. It builds our faith. The third thing is this, be aware that your thinking will determine where the battle goes. Your thinking will determine where the battle goes. Uh, there's a great, great uh, few scriptures in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. It says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedience to Christ. I want to say this in the battle, wherever the battle has come from, the enemy will try and use it to your disadvantage. And the battle is going to start in your mind. God has given us spiritual weapons in the battles. He's given us the promises of his word. I think even as we were in worship this morning, and we're going to have a little bit more later, that's battle. When we worship the Lord, we're battling. Praises, so sing praises. That's part of our weapon. And prayers that we cry out to God. We've been given spiritual weapons to slay giants and demolish arguments and that which has set itself up in defiance against us and God and also to demolish pretensions. That's an interesting word. We don't use the word pretension much. A pretense is an attempt to make something that is not the case appear true. A pretension's a lie. Goliath was a pretension. He had the appearance of being invincible and conquerable, that he could wipe out the entire Israel army, but it was all a pretense. It was a lie. And if we buy into the lie, we will live in anxiety and dread and fear. But we begin powerful weapons to demolish strongholds, the scripture says. You know, it's interesting that word strongholds, there's another equivalent Greek word that also means prison. I think it applies well here. Unless we defeat the lies in our minds, we will be a prisoner. But when we demolish strongholds, we're set free. I came across a great acronym. I I wish I... I should have put this on a slide. I don't think it is. I came across a great acronym for the word FEAR, F-E-A-R. False Evidence Appearing Real false evidence appearing real. That's the enemy's tactic. The truth is that Jesus has already won the victory over the enemy through the cross. The enemy's lost, and now he can only lie and try and get us to think that what we face is actually bigger than God. But instead of being captive, the enemy's lies, the scripture tells us, Take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. This picture here is really uh, instead of the enemy having its spear uh, at your back and you're walking ahead of the enemy, you turn the tables and now you're the one with the spear with the enemy in front of you. How do you take captive every thought? You replace it with truth. You replace that lie with God's truth. And there's a victory in that. Here's my last point. Very practical. Always carry extra ammo. You know, David only needed one stone for the giant, but he chose five. You ever wonder why? How many have wondered, why did he grab five stones? He only needed one. There's been explanations given. Um, I think a real common one is, well, David knew that Goliath had brothers. (laughs) 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 You know, brothers stick up for brothers, even though they pick on them too, right? But here's a point I want to make, and I think it's a practical point. Be prepared, because there's going to be more battles. You're not done with battles. As long as we have life on this planet, there are more battles ahead, more giants to slay. There are going to be more to come. But I'm going to encourage you. We don't face the battle alone. We face those in God's strength. There's more victory on the way, and God gets the praise and the glory. Let me encourage you, don't be afraid or discouraged, for the battle is not yours. The battle's not yours, but the Lord's. I want to pray for us. And uh, I'm certain there are many here today that are fighting battles. And I want to pray for us, that we would invite God into the battle, that we would frame our very thinking from a heavenly perspective and we would take captive those thoughts and allow the Word of God to be larger in our lives than the giant we face. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for uh, the stories of the Bible that teach us about you, about your power and about your strength and your goodness. I thank you what you teach us even in Bible characters, not only their flaws and their faults, but Lord, their faith to believe you for who you are. Lord, I pray for us today, um, and especially I lift up those that right now, right now are going through battles. Lord, may, may they know where their help is gonna come from. May they turn to you. I pray, Lord, in the midst of the battle that there might be a confidence and a faith and a trust in you as they invite you to battle for them. And I pray, Lord, that you would lead them to places of victory, that you might be glorified. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.